smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. Smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about serverless architectures. What does that mean and how does it differ from how we might build sites currently? We talked to Chris Coyer to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Setting Up Redux for Use in a Real-World Application, Jerry Navi looks at getting started with Redux, a robust state management library for single-page JavaScript apps. Going from a Hello World simple counter app to a real-world use case can be quite a jump. Jerry helps us learn the concepts and implement Redux to get us on our way. Suzanne Skacker asks, can you design a website for the five senses? While you don't want to design a website for all five senses, because that would most certainly lead to sensory overload, you can use individual senses to strengthen the experience visitors have. Suzanne takes a look at five ways that you can use the senses to put your visitors in a better headspace when they enter your site and interact with your brand. In Creating a Static Blog with Sapper and Strappy, Daniel Madalitzo-Fieri takes you through how to build a Svelte-powered static blog with Sapper, a progressive JavaScript framework, and Strappy, an open-source headless content management system, as well as how to deploy that website to Netlify. You'll understand how to build a static website, as well as the power of a headless CMS with a real-world example. Blessing Crofiha gives us a practical guide to product tools in React apps, in which we can learn how to proactively use product tools to onboard users into a new and complex UX, and how to familiarize them with UI functionality without being boring. And in the third and final part of how to create a Porsche 911 with Sketch, Nikola Lazarevich shows us how to create the wheels with rims and tyres and all the final touches including the racing decals on the car's body. If you missed the first two parts of this tutorial for illustrators using Sketch, you'll find them linked from the article so you can follow along from the start. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's a web designer and developer who you may know from CSS Tricks, a website he started more than 10 years ago and that remains a fantastic learning resource for those building websites. He's the co-founder of CodePen, a browser-based coding playground and community used by front-enders all around the world to share what they make and find inspiration from those they follow. Alongside Dave Rupert, he's the co-host of Shop Talk Show, a podcast all about making websites. So we know he knows a lot about web development, but did you know he once won a hot dog eating competition using only his charm? My smashing friends, please welcome Chris Coyer. Hello, Chris. How are hey, you? Hey, I'm smashing. I wanted to talk to you today uh, not about CodePen, um, and I don't necessarily want to talk to you about CSS Tricks, which is one of those amazing resources that I'm sure everyone knows appears right at the top of Google search results when looking for answers about any web dev question. They up, pop, up pops your face and, and <laughs> there's a useful blog post written by you or one of your guest uh, contributors. Yeah, I used to actually do that, you know, the, 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 the like 
there was a, I don't know, I probably was during the time of when Google had that weird social network. What was that? Google Plus? Oh, or Plus. Yeah. Yeah. Where they would associate a website with a, a plus account. And so my plus yeah. account had a avatar and the avatar was me. So it would show up in search. I think those days are gone. I think if you, I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of wanted to talk to you some about something that has been a little bit more of a sort of side interest of yours. Uh, and that's this concept of serverless architectures. Mm. Um, this, this is something you've been learning sort of more, more about for a little while. Is that right? Uh Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like a, a fan. It seemed like a you know, it seems like a natural fit to the evolution of front end development, which is where you know I, I feel like I have at least some expertise. You know, I consider myself much more of a much more useful on the front end than the, than the back end. Not that I do it all these days. You know, I've been around long enough that I'm not afraid of looking at a little Ruby code. That's for sure. But um, but I just I, I prefer the front end. I've studied it more. I've participated in projects more at that level, and then you know along comes this little kind of a new paradigm that says you know you can use your JavaScript skills on the server, and it's just it's just it's just as interesting. You know, it seems like a that, that's how I think of it. I, there's a lot more to it than that, but. Uh, that, that's why I care is because I feel like it's like it's like front end developers have have dug so deep into JavaScript and now and now we can use that same skill set elsewhere. Mm, pretty cool. Seems like a, a, a whole new world has opened up. Whereas used to, if you were just a front end coder, I say just a front end coder. I shouldn't. If you're a front end coder um, and you're uh, used to working with a colleague or a, a friend to help you with the back end implementation suddenly that's that's opened up and it's something that you can manage more of the whole stack yourself yeah yeah that's it you know um addressing the elephant in the room right mm. at the top um we're, we're talking about serverless and obviously naming things is hard we all know that serverless architecture doesn't mean there are no servers does it you know <laughs> well, i think it's mandatory like if you're if you're if this is if this is the first podcast you're hearing of it or in the in the first you know if you're only hearing the word serverless in the in the first dozen times you ever heard it it's mandatory that you have a visceral reaction and have this kind of oh, but there's still servers like that's okay if that's happening to you right now just know that that's a required step in this, you know? It's just like anything else in life. There's stages to, to this understanding. You know, the first time you hear something, you're required to kind of reject it a little bit, and then only only after a dozen times or so, or after it's proven it's worth a little bit to you, do you get to enter the, the further stages of understanding here. So, um, But, you know, the word has, has won, so... If you're if you're still fighting against the word serverless, I hate to, I hate to tell you that the the train has left the station. There, the word is already successful. You're not going to win this one, so, so sorry. But I do think it's interesting that it's not that I, it's starting to be like maybe there actually aren't servers involved sometimes. Uh, I, I would think one of the things that like locked serverless in as a concept was was AWS Lambda. They were kind of the first on the scene. A Lambda is like a function that you you know you give to AWS and it puts it in the magical sky, uh, and then it, it has a URL. 
and you can hit it and it will run that function and return something if you want it to, <laughs> you know, like that's just HTTP or whatever. That's how it works, which, you know, the first time you're there, like, why? I don't, I don't care. But then there's some obvious things to it. Like I could, it, it, it could know my API keys that, that nobody else has access to. Like that's why you run backend to begin with is that it knows secret stuff that, that, that doesn't have to be like in the JavaScript on the client side. So if it needs to talk to a database, it can do that. It can do that securely without having to like expose API keys elsewhere or, or even where that data is or how it gets it. It's, uh, so that's, that's pretty cool. I can write a function that talks to a database, gets some data, returns that. Cool. So Lambda is that, but you know, AWS works. It's like, you have to like pick a region, you know, you're like, I don't know where it should be, Virginia, Oregon. Should I pick the Australia one? I don't know. They have 20, 30. I don't even know how many they have these days, but even Lambdas had regions. They, I think these days have Lambda at the edge, which means it's all of the regions, which is kind of cool. But, but, you know, they were first and now everybody's got something like lambda all the cloud services they want some kind of service in this in this world and one of them is cloudflare cloudflare has workers they have way more locations than aws has but they executed at kind of at a different time too the way a cloudflare worker is still it's similar to a lambda in that you can run node you know you can run javascript you can run a number of other languages too but it's, i think of this stuff largely the most interesting language is, is javascript just because of the prevalence of it and it happens you know just like at the at the cdn level which i guess is a server but i tend to not think of cdns as a server you know not as not as obviously as something else so it's starting to feel even more serverlessy lately <laughs> Uh, you know, like, is a CDN a server? I mean, I guess it's a computer somewhere, but it feels like even less servery. It feels like, yes, a CDN may be a server, but it's uh, the, the most sort of minimal version of a server. It's like a, a, a thin server, yeah, if you like. Sure. It's, um, I mean, I've, I've heard it said, I, I, can't, uh, I can't remember the source to credit, unfortunately, but I've heard serverless described as being um, like... Uh, using uh, a ride-sharing service like like Uber or Lyft or whatever, you can be carless and not own a car, but that doesn't mean you never use a car. Yeah, it doesn't mean cars don't exist. Mm, that's nice. You just summon you just summon one when yeah. you need it, you, but at the same time, you're not paying the upfront purchase cost of a car. You're not paying maintenance or fuel. Or- right, and the the pricing makes sense too. Right, that's nice. That's a nice analogy, I think. And then you know because it's at the CDN level too, it's kind of like it just like intercepts. HTTP requests that are already happening, which means you don't ask it, you know, you don't send a request to it and it sends a request back. It's just happening during the request naturally, which also makes it feel less servery. I don't know. It's kind of, it's interesting. It's interesting for sure. So that, that's a big deal though. You brought up the pricing thing that it's like, you only pay for what you use. That's significant too. Cause let's say you're a, you know, a backend dev who's used to spinning up servers their whole life. And they just, you know, they, they run the costs. I need this kind of server with this kind of memory and this kind of CPU and these kind of specs. And this is how much it's going to cost. You know, a long serverless comes along and, and like chops the head off of that pricing. So even if you're a backend dev who just doesn't like this that much, that they're just not into it, like your skill set is what it is over the years, you, you compare the price and you're like, what? I could pay, I could be paying 1% of what I was paying before. Like you, you are not allowed to not care about that, right? Like you're, if you're, if you're this backend dev that's paying a hundred times more for their servers than they need to be paying, you're just kind of bad at your job then. 
you know, sorry to say, like, like this has come along and this is, has shattered pricing in, in a lot of ways. So you have to care about that. And it's kind of cool that somebody else is, it's, it's not like you don't have to worry about security at all, but it's not, it's like not your server. Like you don't have your Lambda or cloud function or your worker or whatever isn't sitting on a server that's right next to some really sensitive data on your own network. It's not right next to your database. So if somebody like writes code that somehow tries to eject itself from the worker or the Lambda or whatever and try to get access to other things in that network, there's nothing there to get. So the security is a big deal too. So if that's, again, if that's your job as the server admin is to, is to deal with the security of this thing, running it, running certain things in Lambda, you just get some natural security from it, which is great. So it's like, it's way cheaper. It's way more secure. It encourages these small modular architecture, which can be a good idea. There's just, it seems to be like domino after domino of, of good ideas here, you know, and that's why it's notable, you know? Yeah. I mean, traditionally with a a server-based architecture that we've been running for decades on the web, you have a web server that you run yourself. It holds your front end code, your back end code, your database and everything. Then you need to, to maintain that and, and keep it running and pay the bills. And even if it's not being used, it's there clocking up bills. Um, and the, the user would make a request and it would build all that, um, HTML query stuff from the database, send it all down the line to the, to the browser. Um, uh, but that, you know, that process works. It's it's how loads of things are, are built. It's probably how the majority of the web is built. It's how things like WordPress work. Um, is this really a problem that we need to solve? I mean, we've we've talked about costs a little bit. Um, what what are the other sort of problems with that that we're that we need to address and that that serverless might help us with? Yeah, the problems with the old yeah. school approach. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there isn't any. It's, I'm not saying the whole web needs to change their whole you know, the whole thing overnight. I don't know, you know, maybe it, maybe it doesn't really, but I think it opens up doors and it just seems like when, when good ideas arrive like this, they, they just slowly change how the web operates at all. So if there's some CMS that is built in some way that expects a database to be there and this is the, it, it means that like maybe the hosts of the future will start leveraging this in interesting ways. Maybe it feels to you like it's still just a traditional server, but the hosts themselves have farmed it out how they operate to serverless architectures so you don't even really know that that's happening but they've found a way to slash their costs by hosting the stuff that you need in serverless ways so maybe you don't even need to care as a developer but at a meta level that's what's happening i I, maybe i don't know but it, it also doesn't mean that like you know Databases are still there. If it turns out that architecturally having a relational database is the correct way to store that data, great. You know, it doesn't. I mention that because this world of serverless is kind of growing up at the same time that Jamstack is. And Jamstack is this architecture that's like, you know, you should be serving your website off of static hosts that run nothing at all except for they're they're like little CDNs, you know. They're like, I can do nothing. I don't run PHP. I don't run Ruby. I run nothing. I run a tiny little web server that's just designed to serve static files only. And and then if you need to do more than that, if you need to pull data from a relational database, then please do it at some other time, not at the server time. You can either do it in a 
build process ahead of time and pull that stuff out of the database, pre-build static files and all serve those, or do it at runtime, meaning you get this shell of a document and then it makes a JavaScript request to get some data and pre-fills it then. So you can you do it ahead of time or after time. Uh, but it doesn't mean don't use a relational database. It just means don't use don't have the server generate it uh, like at at the time of the request of the document, which is a I don't know it's a little bit of a paradigm shift, you know. And that, you know, it's not just Jamstack either. We're also living in the time of JavaScript frameworks. We're living in a time where it's it's starting to be a little more expected that the way that a JavaScript application boots up is that it mounts some components, and as those components mount, it asks for the data that it needs. And so, so it can be a kind of a natural fit for something like a React website to be like, well, I'll just hit a serverless function to cough up the data that it needs. It hits some JSON API, essentially. I get the JSON data that I need, and I construct myself out of that data, and then I render onto the page. Now, whether that's good or bad for the web, it's like, I don't too bad. You know, ship has sailed. You know, it's, that's, how, that's how a lot of people are, are building sites. It's just client-rendered things. And so serverless and and like modern JavaScript kind of go hand in hand. And I suppose you don't have to wholesale be looking at one architecture or another. There's there's an area in the middle where parts of an infrastructure might be more traditional and parts could be serverless, um, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, they're, try- they're trying to tell you that anyway. Anybody that wants to sell you any part of their architecture, like, you don't have to buy in all right now. <laughs> Just do it a little bit, you know, because, of course, they want you to to dip your toe in whatever they're selling. Because once you're dipped the toe, the chances that you splash yourself into the pool is a lot higher. So I think that's, it's, it's not, it's not a lie though, necessarily. Although I find a little less luck in, like, I don't want my stack to be a little bit of everything. I think there's like some technical debt there that I don't always want to swallow, but it's possible to do, you know, I think the most quoted one is like, let's say I have, you know, a site that has an e-commerce element to it, which means, and let's say large scale e-commerce, so 10,000 products or something that like this, the Jamstack architecture hasn't gotten to the point where that's always particularly efficient to like rebuild that statically. So the, the, you know, the thinking goes, then don't let that part kind of hydrate naturally with, you know, hit serverless functions and get the data that it needs and and do all that. But the rest of the site, which isn't, there's not as many pages, there's not as much data you could kind of pre-render or whatever, you know. So a little bit of both. And of course, plenty of people are dealing with legacy systems that, you know, some old database thing that was built in the, you know, 2000s, um, that they may be able to to stick a a sort of JSON API layer on, on top of, um, um, yeah. and build something more modern and, and and perhaps serverless and then still interact with those legacy systems by sort of gluing it all together in, in, in a weird way. Yeah. I like that though, isn't it? Because aren't most websites already exist? You know, how many of us are totally greenfielding websites? You know, most of us work on some crap that already exists that needs to be dragged into the future for some reason, you know, because I don't know, developers want to work faster or you can't hire anybody in COBOL anymore or whatever this story is, you know. So terminology wise, we're talking about Jamstack, which is this uh, methodology of um, running your code uh, pretty much in the, in the browser, serving it from um, CDN. So not having anything dynamic on the server. And then when we talk about serverless, we're talking about the, those, those small bits of functionality that 
run on on a server somewhere else. Is that right? We were talking about like this cloud function kind of. Yeah, I mean, they just happen to they just happen to be both kind of hot ideas right now. So it's kind of easy to talk about one and talk about the other, but. Uh, they don't necessarily need to be together. You could run a Gemstack site that has nothing to do with serverless anything. You're just doing it. You just pre-build the site and run it, and you can use serverless without having to care about Gemstack. In fact, CodePen does nothing Gemstack at all. I'm not that we want to talk about CodePen necessarily, but it's like it's a Ruby on Rails app. It runs on a whole bunch of AWS EC2 instances and a variety of other architecture to make it happen. But it, we use serverless stuff whenever we can for whatever we can because it's cheap and secure and and just a nice way to work. Um, so we you know no Jamstack in use at all, but serverless all over the place. So that, that's quite interesting. What sort of tasks are you putting um, serverless to on CodePen? Well, there's a whole bunch of things. One of them is, is I think, hopefully fairly obvious is like, I need, let's, the point of CodePen is that you write HTML, CSS, and JavaScript in the browser, and it renders in front of you, right? But you can pick preprocessor languages as well. Like, let's say you like SAS, you turn SAS on in the CSS, and you write SAS. Well, something has to process the SAS. These days, SAS is written in Dart or something. You Theoretically, you could do that in the client. But these libraries that do preprocessing are pretty big. I don't think I want to ship the entire SAS library to you just to run that thing. I don't, I don't want to. It's just not, that's not the right architecture for this necessarily. Maybe it is down the road. I mean, we could talk about offline crap, yada, yada, web workers. There's a million architectural things we could do. But here's how it does work now is there's a Lambda. It processes SAS. It has one tiny, tiny, tiny little job. You send it this blob of SAS and it sends you stuff back, which is the process CSS, maybe a sitemap, whatever, you know, it has one tiny little job and we probably pay for that Lambda like four cents or something. Cause the, like Lambdas are just incredibly cheap, you know, and you can hammer it too. You don't have to worry about scale. You just hit that thing as much as you want and your bill will be astonishingly cheap. You know, there are, there is moments where serverless starts to cross that line of being too expensive. I don't know what that is. I'm not that master of stuff like that, but generally any serverless stuff we do, we basically <laughs> nearly count as free because it's it's that cheap. But there's one for SAS, there's one for less, there's one for Babel, there's one for TypeScript, there's one for, you know, there's all the all those are individual lambdas that we run. Here's some code, give it to the lambda, it comes back, and we do, do whatever we're going to do with it. But we use it for a lot more than that, even recently. Um, here's an example, like we... Um, Every single pen on Copen has a screenshot, you know? That's kind of cool, right? So you, you hit the people make a thing, and then uh, we need like a PNG or a JPEG or something of it so that we can, that way when you tweet it, you get the little preview of it. If you share it in Slack, you get the little preview of it. If you, we use it on the website itself to render um, instead of an iframe, if we could detect that the pen isn't animated, because an iframe's heavy and an image is much lighter, so why not use the image? It's not animated anyway. You know, just performance gains like that. So each of those screenshots has a URL to it, obviously, you know? And we've architected it so that that URL is actually a serverless function. It's a worker. And so <laughs> if that URL gets hit, we can really quickly check if we've already taken that screenshot or not. That's actually enabled by Cloudflare workers because Cloudflare workers are not just a serverless function, but they have a data store too. They have this thing called key value store. So you can, the ID of that, we can just check really quick and it'll be true or false. Do you have it or not? If it's got it, it serves it and it serves it over Cloudflare, which is super fast to begin with. 
then gives you all this ability too, because because it's an image CDN, you can say, well, serve it in the optimal format, serve it at these dimensions. And I don't have to make the image in those dimensions. You just put the dimensions in the URL and it comes back as that size magically. So that's really nice. If it doesn't have it, it like asks another serverless function to make it really quick. So it'll make it and then it'll put it in a bucket somewhere because you have to have an origin for the image, right? You have to actually host it somewhere usually. So we put it in an S3 bucket uh, real quick and then and then serve it. So it's like there's no queuing server. There's no nothing. It's like serverless functions manage the creation, storage, and serving of these images and there's like 50 million or 80 million of them or something that's a lot so it, it handles it at scale pretty nicely uh, and we just don't even touch it you know it just happens it all happens super fast super nice i guess it um incur well a, a serverless function is ideally going to suit a task that has needs very little knowledge of of state of things i mean you mentioned cloud Cloudflare's ability to store key value pairs to see if you've got something cached already yeah. or not. That's uh, what they're trying to solve, though, with those though, okay. those key value pairs is that that I think that traditionally was true. They're like avoid state in the in the thing because you just can't count on it. And Cloudflare workers are being like, no, you actually you you can deal with state to some degree. It's not as fancy as a. I don't know. It's key value, so it's you know, it's a key and a value. It's not as it's not like a nested relational fancy thing. So there's probably some limits to that. But this baby days for this stuff. I think that stuff's going to evolve to be more powerful. So you do have some some ability to do some state like stuff. And sometimes the the limitation that sort of limited ability to to maintain state or the fact that you mm. uh, have no you you know you want to maintain no state at all kind of pushes you into an architecture that gives you this this sort of um when we talk about the software philosophy of of small pieces loosely joined don't we Mm. where each little component does one thing and does it well and doesn't really know about the rest of the ecosystem around it and it seems that that really applies to this this concept of serverless functions do you agree yeah i think you you know and that's a i think you could have a philosophical debate whether that's a good idea or not you know i think some people like the the monolith as it were and i think there's there's possible there's ways to overdo this and to make too many small parts that are too hard to to test all together because it's one thing to it's nice to have a test that's like well i wonder if my SaaS function is working well let's just write a little test for it and make sure that it is but let's say what matters to the user is some string of seven of those you know how do you test all seven of them together i think that story gets a little more complicated i don't know how to speak super intelligently to all that stuff but i know that our, it's not it's not necessarily that if you roll with all serverless functions, that's automatically a better architecture than any other architecture. I I like it. It reasons out to me nicely, but I don't know that it's the end-all be-all of all architectures, you know? To me, it feels extremely web-like um, in that it's, this is exactly how HTML works, doesn't it? You deliver some HTML and... Um, the, the browser will then go and fetch your images and fetch your JavaScript and fetch your CSS. It seems like it's a, a, an expansion That's of that nice. sort of idea. Um, but w- one thing we know about the web is that it's designed to be resilient because networks are fragile. Uh, how robust mm. is the sort of serverless approach? What happens if if something if one of those small pieces goes away? That would be very bad, you know. 
<laughs> and it, would be, it would be a disaster. Your site would go down just like any other server if it happens to go down, I guess. you know. Are there ways to mitigate that that are particularly suited to this sort of approach that you've come across? Maybe. I mean, like I said, like a really super fancy robust thing might be like, let's say you visit CodePen and let's say that there's a JavaScript implementation of SAS and we noticed that you're on a fairly fast network and that you're idle right now, maybe we'll go grab that JavaScript and we'll throw it in a service worker. Then if we detect that the Lambda fails or something, or that you have this thing installed already, then we'll hit the service worker instead of the Lambda and service workers are able to work offline. So, you know, that's kind of nice too. That's, Interesting. I mean, they are the same language-ish, you know, service workers are JavaScript and a lot of cloud functions are JavaScript. So there's some, I think that's a possibility, although that it's just, that's a, that's, that's some serious technical debt. You know, it's, it just scares me to like have this chunk of JavaScript that you've delivered to how many thousands of user that you don't necessarily know what they have and what version of it they have. And, ooh, you know, <laughs> but that's just my own scaredyness you know that, that i'm sure people have done a good job with that type of thing but I, I actually don't know maybe you know some strategies that i don't on resiliency of serverless i guess there's a um uh, a failure mode a style of failure that could happen with serverless functions where you uh, run it run a function once and it fails and you can run it a second time immediately afterwards and it would succeed because it might hit a completely different server um, or, you know, whatever the problem was when, when that run may not mm. exist on a second request. Um, I, the, the issues of, a, of an entire host being down is one thing, um, but maybe there are, you, ha- you have individual problems with the machine. You have a particular server where its memory has gone bad and it's throwing a load of errors. And yeah. the first time you hit it, it's going to fail. Second time, you might, that might, problem might have been rooted around. Companies that tend to offer this technology, you know, you have to trust them but they also happen to be the type of companies that they this this is their pride this is the reason why people use them is because they're reliable you know i'm sure people could point to some aws outages of the past but they tend to be a little rare and like a little, not super common and you if you were hosting your own crap i bet they got you beat from an sla percentage kind of level you know so you know it's not not like don't build in a resilient way but generally the type of companies that offer these things are pretty damn reliable you know the chances of you going down because you screwed up that function are a lot higher than because their architecture is failing you know i suppose i mean just like anything where you're using an api or uh something that that can fail it's just making sure you structure your code to cope with that failure mode uh, and to know what happens next rather than just throwing up an error to the user or, or just dying or or what have you it's it's yeah. being aware of that and asking the user to try again or trying again yourself or or, or something yeah like that. i like that idea of trying more than once you know rather than just being like oh no fail <laughs> abort you know like yeah. i don't know why don't you, why don't you try again there buddy you know <laughs> So, I mean, when it comes to, to testing and development and uh, of, of serverless functions, sort of cloud functions, is that something that can be done locally? Does it have to be done in the cloud? Is, are there ways to, to manage that? Uh, I think there are some ways. I don't know if the story is like as awesome. You know, it's still relatively new concept. So I think that that gets better and better. But f- from what I know, for one thing, you're writing 
a, a fairly normal node function. Like assuming you're using JavaScript to do this, and I know that on Lambda specifically, they support all kinds of stuff. You can write a freaking PHP cloud function. You can write a Ruby cloud function. So I'm, I know I'm specifically talking about JavaScript because I have a feeling that most of these things are JavaScript. But you know, if that even no matter what language it is, I mean, you can go to your command line locally and execute the thing. So, like, some of that testing is you just test it like you would any other code, you know? You just call the function locally and see if it works, you know? It's a little different story when you're talking about, like, an HTTP request to it. That's the thing that you're trying to test. Does it respond to the request properly, and does it return the stuff properly? I don't know. The network might get involved there, so you might want to write tests at that level, that's fine. I don't, I don't know. What the, what is the normal story there? You spin up some kind of local server or something that serves it, use Postman, I don't know. But there's... Um, the frameworks try to help, too. I know that the serverless, like, .com, which is just terribly confusing, but there's literally, like, a company called Serverless, and they make a framework for writing serverless functions that helps you deploy them. So if you like npm install serverless, you get like their framework. And it's widely regarded as very good because it's it's just very helpful, but they don't have like their own cloud or whatever. You write these and then then it helps you get them to a lambda a real lambda or I it might work with multiple cloud providers. I don't even know these days, but th- their purpose of existing is to make the like the deployment story easier, I don't know what you know. AWS is not renowned for their simplicity, you know. Like there's all this world of tooling to help you use AWS, and they're one of them. They have some kind of paid product. I don't even know what it is exactly, but what, I think one of the things they do is like the, the the purpose of using them is for testing, is to like have a dev environment that's for testing your your serverless function. Yeah, because I guess that that is quite a big part of the of the workflow, isn't it? If you've written your JavaScript function, you've tested it locally, you know it's going to do the job. How do you actually pick which which provider it's going to go into, and and how do you get it onto that service? That, I mean, that's a minefield, isn't it? No, yeah, I mean if you want to use no tooling at all, I think they have like a really like AWS specifically has a really rudimentary, like GUI for your, the thing you can like paste the code in there and like hit save and be like, okay, I guess it's live now. You know, that's not the best dev story, but I think you could do it that way. I know Cloudflare workers have this thing called Wrangler that you, you install locally and you spin it up and it, it spins up like a fake browser on the top and then dev tools below. And then you can visit the URL and it somehow intercepts that and runs your, your local cloud function against it. It's one of the interesting things about, workers is you know how it described how it, it's you don't you don't like hit a url and then it returns stuff it just automatically runs when you want to like intercepts the url like cdn style so one of the things it can do is like manipulate the html on the way through so the worker is like you know it has access to the complete html document and they have like a jQuery-esque thing that's like, look for this selector, get the content from it, replace it with this content, and then then continue their request. So you can like mess with code on the way through it. And so to test that locally, you're using their little Wrangler tool thing to do that. Also, I think the way we did it was 
it's also a little dangerous because like the the second you put it live, it's like it's like affecting all your web traffic. It's like kind of a big deal. Like you don't want to screw up a worker, you know. So you can you can spin up like a dev worker that's like at a at a fake subdomain. And because it's Cloudflare, you can like Cloudflare can just make a subdomain anyway. I don't know. It's just kind of a, a nice way to do it. So you, you're only affecting subdomain traffic, not your main traffic yet. But the subdomain's just a mirror of of production anyway. So that's kind of a that's a that's a testing story there. It brings up an interesting thing though to me is like imagine you have two websites. Um, one of them is. Uh, like for us, it's like a Ruby on Rails app, whatever. It's like a thing, but you know, we don't have like a CMS for that. That's just like it's it's not it's not a CMS really. I think there's probably Ruby CMSs, but I don't. There's not any renowned ones. You know, seems like all the good CMSs are PHP for some reason. So you want a quality CMS, you know, Drew, you've lived in the CMS market for a long time. So you know how this goes. Let's say you want to manage your sites in Perch or whatever, because it's a good CMS and that's like the proper thing to use to build the kind of pages you want to build. But you don't want to run them on the same server. You like, you want to, let's say you want to manage the pages on one site, but show them on another site. Well, I don't know. There's any number of ways to do that, but like one JavaScript way could be like, okay, load the page. There's an empty div there. Run some JavaScript. Ask the other site for the content of that page, and then plunk it on the, the another the new page. That's fine, I guess. But like that, now you're in a client side rendered page. It's like it's going to be slow. It's going to have bad SEO because it take you know Google will see it eventually, but it takes like ten days or something, and it's just like a bad story for SEO. It's not very resilient because who knows what's going to happen to the network. It's like not the greatest way to like do this kind of content elsewhere, you know, content on site B, show page on site A situation. You could also do it on the server side, though. Let's say you had like Ruby is capable of writing a network request too, but that's even scarier because then like if something fails on the network, the whole page could die or something. Like it's a really, it's like a nervous thing. Like I don't, I don't love doing that either, but we did this just recently with a worker and that we, because the worker's JavaScript, it can make a fetch request. So we, it fetches site A, it finds this div on the page, and then it goes and asks site B for the content, gets the content, plugs it into that div and serves the page before anything. So it looks like a server rendered page, but it wasn't. It all happened at the on the edge, at the, at the worker level, at the serverless level, you know? So it's kind of cool. And, it, you know, I think you can imagine like a, a fetch request on the browser probably takes like, I don't know, a second and a half or something. It probably takes a minute to, to do it. But because these are like, you know, site B is hosted on some nice hosting and Cloudflare is some who knows what kind of supercomputers they use to do what they do. Those are just two servers talking to each other. And that fetch request happens just so super duper duper fast. It's not limited to the internet connection speed of the user. So that little request takes like two milliseconds to get that data. So it's kind of this cool like way to stitch together a site from multiple sources and have it feel like and behave like a server rendered page. I think there's like some, a cool future to that. Are there any sort of conventions that uh, are, are sort of springing up around serverless stuff? I'm sort of thinking about how to architect things. Say I've got something where I want to do two, two sort of requests to different APIs. Um, I want to take in a, a, a postal address and 
geocode it against one and then take those coordinates and send that to a florist who's going to flower bomb the front yard or something. Um, uh, how would how would you build that? Would you would you do two two separate things, or would you turn that into like one um, one function and and just make the request once from the browser? Mm. That's a fascinating question. I'd probably have like an architect function or something. Like one one function would be the one that's in charge of of orchestrating the rest of them. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be like your website is the hub, and it only communicates to this array of of single sources. Like you know, serverless functions can talk to other serverless functions. So I think that's somewhat common to have a have a kind of an orchestrator function that 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 makes the different calls and stitches them together and returns them as one. I think that is probably smart um, and faster. Because you know you want you want servers talking to servers, not the client talking to a whole bunch of servers. So if it can make one request and get everything that it needs, I, I think that's probably generally a good idea. Yeah, that that sounds smart. Yep. Uh, but you know, I think that that's the ultimate thing. You get a bunch of server nerds talking; they'll talk about the different approaches to that exact idea in ten different ways. You know. Yeah. No, that sounds pretty smart. I mean, you mentioned as well that, um, that, that this approach is ideal if you're using APIs where you've got secret information, you've got API keys or, mm. or something that you don't want to live in the client. Because I don't know, maybe this florist API charges yeah. you a hundred dollars every time you flower bomb someone. Um, uh, easily, you you can you can then you can basically use those functions to almost like proxy the request and add in the secret information as it goes and, and keep it secret. Is that that's a viable way to work. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, secrets are—I don't know—they're they're interesting. They're, they're a form of buy-in, I think, to whatever provider you go with, because you know, I think largely because of source control. Because it's, it's kind of like you could just put your API key right in the serverless function, because it's just going to a server, right? So it doesn't—you don't even have to abstract it, really. Like the client will never see that code that executes, but. In order for it to get there, there's probably a, a source control along the way. It's probably like you commit to master, and then master, then some kind of deployment happens that makes that thing go to the serverless function, and you can't then that then you can't put your API key in there because then it's in the repo, and you don't put your API keys in repos. You know that's like good advice. Now there's stuff you know you just on. On uh, CodePen recently, we started using this Git crypt thing, which is an interesting way to to put keys safely into your repos because they're it's encrypted by the time anybody's looking at that file, but only locally they're decrypted, so they're useful. So, so it's just kind of an interesting idea. I don't know if that helps in this case, but usually cloud providers of these things have like a web interface that's like put your API keys here and we'll make them available at runtime of that function. And then it's like, it kind of locks, it doesn't lock you in forever, but it kind of is like, you know, it's not as easy to move because all your keys are, you put in some input field and some admin interface somewhere, you know. Yeah, I think that's the way that uh, Netlify manage it. They all do, you know. Um, You have have secret environment variables that you can can set from the web interface and and, uh, it seems to work uh, quite nicely. Yeah, yeah. Right. But then, like, you got to leave. I don't know. It's not that big of a deal, but 
I'm not saying they're doing anything nefarious or anything, but it's like, where, what do you, how do you deal with those secrets? Well, it's a hard problem. So they kind of booted it to, I don't know, just put them in this input field and we'll take care of it for you. Don't worry about it. You know? uh, is there anything that you've seen that stands out as an obvious case for things that you can do with serverless that you just couldn't do it with a, a traditional kind of server full approach? Or is it just taking the, um, just taking that code and, and sort of almost deploying it in a different way? Yeah, it's probably mostly that. I don't know that it unlocks any possibility that you just absolutely couldn't run in any other way. But it, you know, yeah, I think that's a fair answer. But it it does kind of commoditize it in an interesting way. Like if somebody writes a really nice serverless function, I don't know that this this exists quite yet, but there could be like kind of a marketplace almost for for these functions. Like, I, you know, I want a really good serverless function that can take a screenshot, you know, why why isn't that could be an open source project that lots of eyeballs are on that does a tremendously good job of doing it and solves all these weird edge cases that's the one i want to use and it's you know i think that's kind of that's kind of cool you know they you can kind of benefit from other people's experience in in that way i think that will that will happen more and more and it, i guess it's the benefit that we talked about right at right at the top of um enabling people who write JavaScript and may have written JavaScript only for the front end to expand and use that, use those skills on the back end as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. I think that's because there's moments like, you know, you don't have to be tremendously skilled to know what's appropriate and what's not for, for a website. Like I just, I did a little tutorial the other, other week where there was this, like a, uh, glitch uses these when you save a glitch they save they they give you a slug for your thing that you built that's like you know whiskey tango foxtrot 1000 you know it's like a clever little thing and the the chances of it being unique are super high because i think they even append a number to it or something too but they end up being these fun little things so they open source their library that has all those words in it but it's like hundreds thousands of words so the, the the file is huge you know it's like megabytes large of 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 just a dictionary of words you probably learn in your first year of relevance don't ship a javascript file that's megabytes of a dictionary that's like <laughs> not a good thing to ship you know but node doesn't care you can ship hundreds of it doesn't it's it's irrelevant to the speed of on a server yeah. it doesn't matter on a server so so I could be like, hmm, well, I'll just do it in Node then. I'll have a statement that says, you know, <laughs> words equal require words or whatever <laughs> in the Node at the top. And have it randomize a number, pull it out of the array, and return it. So that serverless function is like eight lines of code with a package.json that pulls in this open source library. And then my front-end code, has a there's a URL to the serverless function. It hits that URL. The URL returns one word or a group of words or whatever. You build your own little API for it. And now I have a really kind of nice, efficient thing. And, and what was nice about that is it's so simple. Like it didn't, I'm not worried about the security of it. I don't, you know, it's just a, a very average or beginner JavaScript developer, I think can pull that off which is cool. Like that's an enabling thing that they didn't have before. You know, if they, if before they're like, well, here's a two megabytes array of, of words, 
oh, I can't ship that to the client. Oh, you're just shut down then. You know, you might hit this wall that's like, I just can't do that part then. I need to ask somebody else to help me with that or just not do it or pick more boring slugs or some. So you have to go some other way that like it's a wall to you because you couldn't do it. And now you're like, well, I'll just, instead of having that in my script slash or my source slash scripts folder, I'll put it in my functions folder instead. <laughs> it's like you kind of like moved the moved the script from one folder to the other. And that one happens to get deployed as a serverless function instead. How cool is that? You know, like you're using the same exact skill set almost, you know, like it's, there's still some rough edges to it, but it's pretty close. You know? It's super cool. You've um, put together a, a sort of little microsite all about uh, these ideas, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. It was a little uh, early to the game. I was just working on it today, though, because it's, it's, it gets pull requests. Uh, the, the idea, well, it's at serverless.cssstricks.com, and uh, there's a dash in CSSTricks, by the way. Um, so it's a subdomain of CSSTricks, and I built it serverlessly, too. So it's, this is, you know, CSSTricks is like a WordPress site, but this is, a, this is a static site generator site. So all the content of it is in the GitHub repo, which is open source. So if you want to change the content of this site, um, you can just submit a pull request, you know, uh, which is nice because there's been a hundred or so of those over time. But I built all the original content. It's a, a super useful place because it, it lists, uh, like if you're thinking, right, I want to get started with uh, serverless functions, it lists all the providers who you could you could try. And That's all it is, pretty much, is lists of, of technology. Yeah. Which, which is great because otherwise you're just Googling for, you know, whatever, and you don't know what you're finding. Um, and, and there's, yeah, it's lists of, of API providers that help you do um, these sorts of things. Uh-huh. Forms is one example of that. Cause so the, the minute that you choose to like, let's say you're going to go Jamstack, which I know that's not like necessarily the point of this, but you see how hand in hand they are. All of a sudden you don't have a PHP file or whatever to process that form with. So how do you do forms on a Jamstack site? Well, I, you know, there's any number of ways to do it. Everybody in their sister wants to help you solve that problem, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on a, you know, on a, I think well, if I was the inventor of the word Jamstack, so they try to help you naturally, but you don't have to use them. And in fact, I was so surprised putting this site together. Let's see, there's six, nine, 12, 15, 18, 21, 22 uh, services out there that want to help you serverlessly process your forms on this site right now. So, if you want to be the twenty third, you're welcome to it. <laughs> you have some you have some competition out there. So the idea behind this is that you write a form in HTML, like literally a form element, and then the action attribute of the form it can't point anywhere internally because there's nothing to point to. You can't process, so it points externally. It points to uh, you know whatever the whatever they want you to to point it to. They'll process the form, and then they tend to do things that you'd expect them to, like send an email notification or send a Slack thing, or then send it to Zapier, and Zapier will send it somewhere else. So they all have slightly different feature sets and and, and pricing and things, but they're all trying to solve that problem for you. Like you don't want to process your own forms, no problem. We'll process it for you, you know. Yeah, it's a super useful resource. I'd um, I'd really recommend everyone check it out. It's uh, serverless.css-tricks.com. So I've been learning all about serverless. What have you been learning about lately, Chris? Mm, well, I'm still very much in this world too, learning about about serverless stuff. Um, I had a uh, an idea to. Um, 
I used to play this online role playing game like ages ago, and I just recently discovered that it's still alive. It's like a it's like a text based um, medieval fantasy kind of game, you know. And I played it when AOL was a thing, because AOL wanted to have these games that you had to be logged on to play it, because they wanted you to spend hours and hours on AOL, so they could send you these huge bills, you know, which was, I'm sure, why they did so well at some point. Because they were billing by the second, yeah. Yeah, so games was was big for them, if you could get you playing games with other people on there. So this game kind of, um, it didn't debut there, but it moved to AOL, because I'm sure they got a juicy deal for it. But it was so, I mean, it just couldn't possibly be nerdier. It's like, you're a, you know, you're a dwarven mage, and you get rune staff from your leather sheath, and, you know, you type commands into, like, a terminal, and then the game responds to you. And I, I had, a, I played that game for a very long time. I was very into it. I got into the community of it and the, mm-hmm. the spirit of it. And um, it was just, it was kind of a, I was, it was like, I was, I was just alone by myself in my computer. But yet I look back on that time of my life and be like, that was a wonderful time in my life. I was, I was really like, I just liked the people and the game and all that. But then I grew up and stopped playing it, you know, because <laughs> life happens to you, you know. Yeah. And I only found out recently because somebody started doing a podcast about it again. I don't know how I came across it, but I just did. And I was like, this game is alive and well in today's world. Are you? you kidding me you know this text-based thing and i was more than happy to reactivate and 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 get my old characters back and play it but only to find out that the clients that they have you download for this game haven't evolved at all they are awful it's like they you know they almost assume that you're using windows you know they're just these terribly cheesy poorly rendering and it's text-based you'd think it at least have nice typography no Ter- you know, so I'm like, I could be involved. I could write a client for this game and uh, put beautiful typography in it and uh, just modernize the thing. And I think the, the players of the game would appreciate it. But it felt overwhelming to me. Like, how? I don't know how, how can I do it. But I find some open source project. One of them is like you can play the game through the ter- through an actual terminal window, and it uses some open source libs to kind of like make a GUI out of a terminal window. Like, okay. I don't know. So th- that was kind of cool. I was like, well. If- they wrote that there's must be code in there to how to connect to the game and get it all going and stuff. So at least I have some starter code and I was trying to go along the app. I was like, maybe I'll do it in flutter or something. So, I, so the, the final product app would be, would work on mobile phones and you know, like I could really modernize this thing, but then I got overwhelmed. I was like, ah, this is too, it's too big. I can't, I'm busy, you know, I run. <laughs> but I found another person who had the same idea and they were way further along with it. And and so I could just contribute on a design level, and and it's been really fun to work on. But I've been learning a lot too because it's rare for me to jump into a project that's somebody else's baby, and I'm just like contributing to a little bit, and that has totally different technology choices than I would have ever picked, you know. So it's an Electron app. They picked that, which is also kind of a cool way to go too because it's my web skills so I'm not learning anything too weird, and it's cross platform, which is great. So I've been learning a lot about. Electron. I think it's 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 fun. That's fascinating. It's always amazing how uh, little side projects and and things that we do for fun end up um, being the place where we sometimes learn the most and learn learn skills that can then feed back into in, into our yeah. sort of daily work. That's how it's almost almost the only way I learn things. I'm like dragged into something that. I was like, oh yeah, like they use they're not. It's rendered with a JavaScript library called Mithril. 
which is, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, it's weird. It's like, it's not, it's almost like writing React without JSX. You have to like create element and do all these, but it's, but it's supposed to benchmark way better than it. And it actually kind of matters because in this text-based game, the text is just flying. So it's, there's like a lot of DOM manipulation, which is like, you'd think this text-based game would be so easy for a, for a browser window to drop, but it's actually kind of not. Like there's so much DOM manipulation happening that you really have to be really, we have to be conscientious about the speed of the rendering, you know? That's fascinating. Pretty cool. Yeah. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Chris, you can find him on Twitter where he's at Chris Coyer. Of course, CSS Tricks can be found at css-tricks.com and CodePen at CodePen.io. But most of all, I recommend that you subscribe to the Shop Talk Show podcast if you haven't already done so at shoptalkshow.com. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Do you have any parting words? Smashingpodcast.com. <laughs> I hope that's the real URL. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at smashingmag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook or in the supermarket by the cat food. <laughs> <laughs>